Uh, as you might have already heard, my name is Kenson Lamb. I have the honor of being a pastor here at Park, specifically a, our Bridgeport location. And looking forward to hosting you guys on October 13th. And what's really cool is that in February, one of our Sundays will actually be canceled and we'll be joining you guys. Uh, and last year we had a chance to do that and many of our folks were so blessed to be part of what God is doing here. Um, it's just really cool kind of how God's made a way for us as a region to find ways to worship and fellowship together. So let's go ahead and read our verses and then we'll jump right in, okay? So Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I'll pray and then we'll dive right in. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would open our eyes to have faith to trust you as we hear your word. And God, every time we open up the pages of scripture, you speak. And Father, help us in this moment not to take it for granted because it is the creator of the universe. It's the Lord of lords. It is the king of kings who speaks to us. So Father, do a work in our hearts. Bring dead hearts to life bring about new affections to our hearts. And Father, for myself, if there's any human wisdom whatsoever, put it to the side and have Christ exalted in every way. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Martin Luther was a German monk, but he resented God. He was committed to living righteously before God, and when compared to his peers, no one else was anywhere near him. No one was as devout as him. But Martin Luther knew that even at his best, he would always fall short of God's standards. And he hated God for this because he felt like God kept putting this righteous and holy standard in how to live only to have him fail over and over and over again to an impossible standard. And, and, and it wasn't until Martin Luther started studying the book of Romans again did he begin to realize that this righteousness of God is not something to hate but something to love because it's this very truth that I can't achieve this righteousness through any of my efforts, through any of my works, through any of my penance, prayers to the saints, indulgences, that it's only God alone who justifies, that this truth transformed him, that it was faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone that brought salvation. And eventually this conversion moment led him to write the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door in Germany to critique the Catholic practices and thus beginning the Protestant Reformation. Story after story that we read in church history, we see God continuously using the book of Romans to transform lives and to bring about spiritual revivals. And if you are here last week, Rafe started off with Augustine and how God used the book of Romans to transform his life. So the question is this, why does this happen every time we open up the book of Romans, transformation and revival? It's because Romans is all about the gospel. 
that it's in the book of Romans we have the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel found in the Bible. And what we have in verse 16 is what many commentators believe is Paul's thesis for the entire book. And that following the following 16 chapters is all, all an elaboration of verses 16 and 17. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to Jews and then to Greeks. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I first want to make sure that we all here understand what the gospel is. Because a lot of people use the word gospel in the church circles, right? Gospel preaching, gospel parenting, gospel-driven church, gospel curriculum, gospel ethics. Okay, I get it. Gospel this, gospel that. But what in the world are we saying when we use the word gospel? First, we need to understand that the gospel is not theory, it's not philosophy, it's not abstract. It's propositional, it's historically reliable, it's theological, it is a set of truths to be believed in. The clearest place I can take you to see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you've ever asked, what is the gospel, you can go here. And let me just show you what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, that word first importance is important because there's a lot of Christian doctrine and teaching, but he's saying this rises to the top, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died in our place for our sins. He was buried and on the third day rose to victory. And when you believe in him, there is forgiveness from God and eternal life. And if you don't believe in him, you, are, you stand condemned and are eternally separated from the love of God. This is the gospel. And it's with this gospel, Paul writes to the church in Rome. Now, when you look at verse 16 here, it almost feels like Paul is a little bit backwards. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why doesn't Paul just say he is proud of the gospel? Wouldn't it mean the same thing? I think what Paul is doing here is being vulnerable with the church in Rome. That he wants to let them know that, guys, I'm there with you. Because even for the great apostle Paul, he could be tempted to be ashamed of the, of the gospel. That keep in mind that Rome right now is in, is, was the capital of power for the Roman Empire and that you had this small little religion called Christianity that had no social capital, no prominence, no status, no money. That for the timid, it would have been very intimidating to follow Jesus in this city. And for many of us here, we know exactly how that feels because we too can be scared to share the gospel. You know, when I became a Christian, you know, I was a freshman in high school, and I was starting to learn what it meant to follow God, and I was sitting in the cafeteria with all my classmates who were not believers, and every time we were about to eat, I would start to sweat because I had a dilemma, that I wanted to say grace for my food, but if I did, I didn't want them to make fun of me, I didn't want them to think that I wasn't cool, even though I wasn't cool, I didn't want them to think less of me not being cool, you know, I didn't want them asking me all these questions that I didn't know how to answer, but I also... But if I didn't say grace, I would feel guilty and I wouldn't enjoy my lunch. So no win situation here. So what I did every day was say grace, but pretend I was doing something else. 
that I pretended that my glasses were dirty. Well, well, there's a smear. And I'll start to wipe it down, and I'll say, dear God, thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. Or I will pretend to tie my shoelaces under the table. Dear God, thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. Then I'll do this over and over again. Being ashamed of the gospel was something I wrestled with back then. But can I be frank with you and honest with you guys now? I still wrestle with, even today, as one of your pastors. Can I ask you guys, do you struggle in the same way? When was the last time you told someone about Jesus Christ? You know, one of the scary realities is that in many of our churches today, many people can't answer that or recall the last time they did that. You know, in our verses, Paul will teach us what it means to be bold for the gospel. And here are the three questions that will help move us along here. So first is this, why are we tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Second, why shouldn't we be ashamed of the gospel? And finally, is there hope for cowards like me? Is there hope for cowards like me? So first, why are we tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? It's because the cross is offensive. And Paul knew this very well. Let me show you 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this about the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul is trash talking right now. Like, where are you guys at? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The cross is an offense. For the Jews, it was a stumbling block because there was no category for unbelieving Jews to have a crucified and dead Messiah. That made no sense whatsoever. And for the Greeks, it was foolishness. It was madness that anyone would allow themselves to be crucified. It was so crude. It was so disgusting. For the Jews and Greeks, the cross was offensive. And because of that, we can be tempted to be ashamed. And can I just say that in the same way, in our cultural context, as America becomes less and less Christian, whatever that means, the message that we preach, the Jesus that we stand for, will become more and more offensive. Let me just give you two reasons of how the cross offends today in our culture. Let me just give you two reasons. First is this, the gospel is exclusive. The gospel is exclusive. Everybody hates exclusivity. That it's all about tolerance and acceptance. That even if we don't agree on the same things here, that at the end of the day, all roads will lead to the same place. For anyone to claim that they have the right way and everyone else is wrong, that is intolerant, that is hateful, no way. That is the culture we live in. And this is why the cross is offensive, because the gospel is exclusive. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no forgiveness of sins outside of Jesus Christ. That in our sin we offended God and because of that there is penalty and punishment due to God. But Jesus took that 
all for us. And because of that, there is no other way, no other world religion, no other world philosophy. It's only in Jesus Christ. The gospel is offensive because it's exclusive. And for some of you right now, you're starting to feel that offense. Here's another reason why the cross is offensive. It's because grace is offensive. Now, you're sitting here thinking, whoa, 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 grace is offensive? No, grace is beautiful. I, I named my daughter Grace, okay? I'm starting to feel a little insulted right now. No, well, how can grace be offensive? Grace means that when God extends salvation, it is freely of his own choosing and not by any of our merits. And this is offensive because salvation, as the verse says here, can be given to everyone who believes. You know, in verse 16, when Paul says the Jews first and then the Greeks, Paul here is not talking about who God loves more, but when he says Jews first, it's because the Jews were the first elected people of God. But the emphasis of verse 16 is not to create separation, it's actually to bring unity, that in Christ, Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, non-Jews, we are all now brothers and sisters in Christ. And this would have been insulting for some of the Jewish believers because you had these Gentile believers who weren't following the law, who weren't being kosher. And the, the believing Jews are like, hey, you need to be circumcised. Hey, you need to follow the law. So Paul shows up and says, hey, Jewish believers, you need to hear this. The gospel says that they don't need to follow any of the law to be loved by God. And you can imagine these Jewish believers like, Paul, Paul, are you, are you telling me that all these Gentile believers have to do is just believe that Jesus died for their sins? Is that it? Just belief? You nailed it. These Jewish believers would have said, that is too easy, way too easy. The cross offends. In the same way, we don't want salvation to be too easy for some. Now for us, we're, we're fine with that. But for others, especially for the really bad sinners, you know, I'm okay if they don't get saved. The school shooters, the, 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 the terrorists, the rapists, the abusers, or if I can get a little bit more personal, the people that have offended us, that have hurt us, that have betrayed us. You know, many years ago, I was counseling a troubled married couple that sadly led to divorce. A lot of betrayal, a lot of hurt things were said, a lot of adultery. A year later, the wife comes into a saving relationship with Jesus, and her life turns around. Nothing short of a miracle. She's getting plugged into church. She's going to recovery groups. She's making amends and peace with everyone that she's offended, which is how I knew she came to know Jesus, because she reached out to me and asked for forgiveness and saying, this is not how a Christ follower is supposed to respond to you. And I was like, oh my goodness, the fruit that I was seeing in her life was amazing. So I go to her ex-husband because he was still attending the church. And I said, hey, man, like, do you know what happened to your, to your ex-wife? And he said this with a disgusted look on his face. We'll see if this lasts. We'll see if this lasts. Do you see? The cross is offensive. And because of this offense, some of us are tempted to distance ourselves 
from the gospel. That there are many churches out there that call themselves Christian and they embrace all the easy things about Christianity. That will talk about love, forgiveness, peace, and they're accepted for culture for this. But these churches won't talk about hell. They won't talk about sin. They won't talk about the, the dreaded R word, repentance. They push it all to the side because they would rather be liked than be faithful to God. Or for some of us here, that we can distance ourselves by being busy with Christian activities. We serve in soup kitchens, help the homeless, build homes. We serve in the church. We sign up for one of the Sunday ministries. Not bad things, but it can become bad if we see them as a way to excuse ourselves from sharing the gospel verbally with others. That in thinking that, you know what, I'm serving inside the church, this gives me a pass from sharing my faith with others. Or that we're hoping that in my service to non-believers or to whatever, right, that hopefully that through my good deeds, I'll assume that the people will know that it's all about Jesus and Jesus loves them. Don't assume anything. Don't assume anything. If we don't proclaim, people won't know. Speaking up. Yes, it's risky, and that's why we distance ourselves, not from Christian activity, but from gospel proclamation. You know, one other way that we can distance ourselves from the gospel is by watering down the gospel. You know, that maybe we're actually, that actually we're very faithful to God's word, that we share the whole gospel, we give the right answer, but we do so apologetically, timidly, you know, kind of with fear and trepidation as we, as we talk about the gospel. You know, many years ago, I gave a sermon on hell, and after that sermon was done, we took texting questions afterwards, and as you guys can imagine, the questions, they were so personal, they were so loaded, you know, what about my loved one who didn't believe, you know, questions like that. And as a shepherd, I felt like, you know what, I want to be very empathetic right now, so I kept looking at the congregation and saying, you know, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I'm sorry that you're hurt. You know, I'm sorry if I said anything that might have offended you. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, I felt like I was being very compassionate in that moment. Well, afterwards, uh, I go back to meet with my lead pastor who was also helping me to answer some of the texting questions. And he looked at me straight in the face and he said, Kenson, you have got to stop apologizing for God's word. You never, ever have to do it. It is truth. It is, he didn't yell at me, but that's how, I, that's how I received it, okay? It is truth. It is loving. It is freedom. It is holy. It is perfect. It brings about salvation. You never have to apologize for God's word. It is good. But we are tempted to be ashamed because, as many of us know, this is also a word that is a double-edged sword. It cuts to the heart. It disciplines and rebukes. It exposes the darkness in our hearts. The Word of God is offensive. The cross is offensive. <coughs> and this leads to the second question. Why should we not be ashamed? Why should we not be ashamed? <coughs> Actually, can I get a cup of water if that's okay? I think I was screaming too much. <coughs> you know, when Paul gives us this verse here, oh, it's, oh, it's right here. Thank you, guys. When Paul gives us this verse, it's not to discourage us, but it's to encourage us. Oh, thank you, Brian. appreciate that. It says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That yes, we are all faced with the temptation to be ashamed, but we don't have to. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God. Now, the word power in the Greek is where we get the word dynamite. Now, it doesn't mean that when you drop the gospel anywhere, it starts to blow things up. That's not what it means. It could. But what this word means in the Greek is that it means active. It means working. It means that it's dynamic. It's meant to tell us that as the gospel goes forth, God is active. God is working. God is being dynamic. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's active way of saving people. Now, it would be wrong for us to think that this saving power is only about conversion. That the only, power, only time I experience the power of God is when I first pro- profess faith in Jesus and never ever again. This is a saving power that we have to understand that is not just for that one moment of salvation, <clears throat> but it's also for every single day, for every single moment. I say this because in verse 16 when it says, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. The word believes is in the present active tense in Greek. And what that means is that this is an ongoing, continuous action of believing and trusting in Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to keep professing faith in Jesus to be saved. But what it does mean is that as you profess, keep professing faith in Christ, as you keep preaching the gospel to yourself, you have access to this power, not just in your salvation, but also in your transformation. That the fancy word for this is sanctification, being made holy. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we're being changed from one degree of glory to another. And what this tells us, and Rafe and I have said this so many times up here, is that the gospel is not just the ABCs of our faith, it's the A to Z of our faith. That the gospel saves us, but it also sanctifies us, secures us, and sends us out. It brings about new affections, new joy, new hope, and a new righteousness. In verse 17, it says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This verse is saying that the reason the gospel has power for salvation is because it reveals God's righteousness. It reveals God as perfect, holy, and just. And in that righteousness, we are guilty and condemned. But when God gives us the eyes of faith, from faith, for faith, just like Martin Luther, that we will see that this righteousness is not something to be feared, but to love because this same righteousness God gives to us so that we can live rightly before him and others. Then when you look at the end of verse 17, it says the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous is us. How did condemned sinners become righteous? It's because God saves. That Jesus on the cross takes on our sinful record and in the great act of substitution now gives us his beauty, his perfection, his holiness so that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And this is why the gospel has power because it reveals Jesus, our righteous king and savior. You know, in the Bible, we're called ambassadors of Christ. Now, an ambassador is someone who represents someone or represents a nation. Now, just imagine that you were an ambassador who represented a nation that lost in war. Maybe World War II, like Japan or Germany. 
What it would, it would be like to be an ambassador for that country during that time? It, it would be shameful. You lost. You were defeated. Let me just show you a picture of when Japan formally surrendered. That you see here is a handful of Japanese diplomats surrounded by American troops, hundreds of American troops, surrounded by American battleships, standing before America's greatest generals. Everything about this moment was to say to Japan, you are defeated. And as an ambassador of Japan, you would be sad. You would be ashamed. You'd be thinking to yourself, uh, you know, what I need to sign, I just want to get out of here. I, this, this is just, this is, I don't like this at all. This would have been really hard because you represented someone who lost. Church, I'm here to tell you, this is not your story. You are not an ambassador of someone who has been defeated. You're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He is the victor. He is the conqueror. He is not lost. He has won. He has defeated the greatest of enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and we are on his side. As Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Church, did you know the tomb is empty? Jesus has ascended and he reigns on high and one day he will return in all his glory and every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus is victorious. Amen? Amen. We have no reason to be ashamed. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't be shamed. Paul was shamed. He was mocked, belittled, ridiculed, been arrested and jailed, betrayed by his false brothers, and eventually killed for his faith. Paul was shamed for the gospel, but he was never ashamed of the gospel. Let me say that one more time. Paul was shamed for the gospel, but he was never ashamed of the gospel. And may that be true of us that the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes that it is a power that brings about new life, but it's also a power that brings about transformation from the inside out. It brings life to death, honor to shame, power to fear, purity to defilement. The lost are found. That's the power of the gospel. And this leads us to the final question. Is there hope for cowards like me? You know, if any of us have followed Christ for any period of time, we have all fallen into a season of fear. That we've been tempted to fear that we know that the Holy Spirit is knocking on our hearts and saying, hey, share the gospel with them. Talk about Jesus with them. And we're like, eh, maybe not. I'll find a different time, you know. I'll see any of them on the train tomorrow, okay. That, that's when I'll do it. And can I be honest with you guys, that even for me, that I, I stand up in front of 100 people and say, share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and I can do this confidently amongst 100 people in the church, but in the coffee shop, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this right now, right? And can I just be honest with you guys, that in those moments of fear, man, I, I, just, I just feel so devastated, I feel like such a hypocrite. Like, you know, I do this, but I tell this to other people to do this, but I won't do this. You know, is there any hope for cowards like me? You know, when I think about cowards in the Bible, one that comes to mind right away is the Apostle Peter. Do you guys know Peter? The Apostle Peter. Peter was one of the disciples that was always so proud of himself that he was always the first to speak up. He was always to put his name out there. 
But we know that even though Peter talked a big game, just like everyone else, when the soldiers came, when the flogging began, Peter was nowhere to be found. That Peter explicitly denied Jesus three times, even spending three years with him, receiving teaching from Jesus, seeing miracles, and also seeing the transfiguration, Jesus in his glory. And even with all that, he turned his back on Jesus. What led to this? It's because his confidence, his boldness was rooted in himself. You know, Matthew 26 says this, Peter answered him, though they, the other disciples, fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus, I will hold the line. I will do it. Peter's also the guy who says to Jesus, when Jesus says that he goes to the cross, Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Or Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he pleads with all his disciples, please pray, please pray. And what do we see Peter doing? He's sleeping. Peter is so confident in, in himself, yet when the pressure got too high, when the cost of following Jesus was too great, he denied him. He put Jesus at a distance. Paul, Peter was so scared of being identified with Jesus that he put a curse on himself, that he said to others, I don't know this Jesus, and if I'm lying to you, may God kill me right here, right now. There is no greater coward in the Bible than Peter. And this is what his denial teaches us. Every time we are ashamed of the gospel, it's because instead of looking to God, we are looking to ourselves. That we're trusting in our own abilities. We're trusting in our own knowledge, our own wisdom. We're trusting in, in the techniques that we've learned. We're trusting in the right circumstances, in the right moment to share the gospel. But here's the problem. What happens when the right circumstance or right moment never comes? You're waiting forever. What happens when you meet someone who is way smarter than you? What happens when you meet someone who is way more articulate than you? You become ashamed of the gospel, not because the gospel is weak, not because Jesus lacks power, but it's because we begin to realize that I'm weak. Left to ourselves, we are all cowards. But here's the good news. Peter denies Jesus. He weeps bitterly. He knows that he's messed up. And he repents. How do I know that he repents? It's because in the book of Acts, Peter gets up before the crowds. He stands before the very people, many of whom celebrated the crucifixion of Jesus, and he says to them in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, no other name under heaven given amongst men which they must be saved. This coward has been transformed. He's become a rock star preacher. He is a bold preacher of the gospel that this was the same guy who denied Jesus and who is now ready to die for him. Why? It's because he repented and turned his eyes to Jesus. That for all of us, this is what we need to do. We need to confess and repent. God, I am such a coward. God, I am such a wimp. So God, 
Give me your Holy Spirit. Let him empower me. Let him give me the words to speak. Let him give me boldness. Did you know the early church prayed this all the time? They said, pray for us for boldness because I'm so scared because literally I can walk outside these doors, talk about Jesus, and die for my faith. I am so scared. Left to ourselves, we are all cowards. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not just to save unbelievers. It's also a power that makes believers bold and courageous because it's the good news that tells us that all shame is gone, that there is nothing that can be said of us or done to us, that Jesus Christ isn't better, that it's in Christ I am loved and I am accepted for all eternity by the only one who matters. So who cares what anyone else says about me? me. It's in this future hope in the gospel we can be bold, and it's in this future hope that gave Jesus boldness. Let me show you Hebrews 12.2. Hebrews 12.2 says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus do with shame? He despised it. He looked down on it. He refused to surrender to the fear. And how did he do this? He did this by looking to the joy that was set before him. So as he's getting crucified, as he's getting nailed, as he's getting mocked, he didn't look to the world. He didn't look to others for comfort or for boldness. His eyes were on the joy of being seated on the right hand of his father. That Jesus could be bold because he looked to the victory that was to come. In the same way, us cowards can be bold, not when we set our eyes on ourselves, but we can be bold when we set our eyes on Jesus Christ. That we can be bold when we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, that God, I'm weak, but you're strong. I'm scared, you're faithful. I'm timid, but you're glorious. I am not ashamed of the gospel, even though I am tempted to be, but I won't be ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, what's an application for us here? I think you guys know where this is going. The gospel is to be proclaimed. The gospel is to be shared. And here's the logic. If I'm ashamed of the gospel, I won't share it. Easy enough. But if I'm proud of the, of the gospel, if I believe it's the power to salvation, I will be eager to share it because nothing can save and change the hearts of men and women for all eternity except the gospel. And when we proclaim this gospel, we also have confidence because we know that it goes forth in power. You know, if you guys can do me a favor here, turn back one page and go to Acts 28. Go to Acts 28. It's it's right the very next page to to Romans 1. Now, in the book of Acts is the account of how the gospel is spread throughout the known world. And from Acts 13 to the rest of the book, it's all about Paul's missionary journeys. And every time Paul preaches the gospel, it's rough. They run him out. They stone him and leave him for dead. Riots break out. They have to smuggle him out of cities at night. But even though it was so hard to preach the gospel, the gospel thrived. Churches were being planted. Now, finally, Paul is making his way to Rome, but before he makes his way to Rome, he goes to Jerusalem to drop off the collection that he's received to help support the Jewish believers who are suffering in immense ways. But when he lands in Jerusalem, they arrest him, and and they say that, you know what, Paul, send him to Rome to face trial. 
So what's interesting here is that Paul actually gets to Rome, but not in the way that he expects to get to Rome. So we get to Acts chapter 28, and Paul is finally in Rome where he's writing this letter to, right? And it's where he, where he, where he wrote this letter to, and it's under house arrest for years. Now, when you look at chapter 28, you think to yourself, the great apostle Paul is in house arrest. Christianity is done. Churches aren't being planted. This is the end of the gospel movement. That, that's it. Look at the last verses of Acts 28. It says this, verse 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, house arrest, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Even in house arrest and with death facing him down, Paul would not stop preaching the gospel. But what I love even more than that is how the book of Acts ends because it ends so abruptly. If you notice it in Acts 28, it never resolves Paul's situation. All right, so for the last, you know, many chapters, I've been reading about Paul and his missionary journeys. Now I'm in chapter 28 and it ends with him at house arrest. What happens to Paul? Does he get out? You know, does he get vindicated? Does he get killed? Well, what happens to Paul? The book of Acts never talks about this. Why? Because the book of Acts is not about Paul. It's the story of the gospel moving out in power. The very last word in the, in the book of Acts is right there. You see it. It's the word unhindered. It means unstoppable that even in the shame of house arrest, the gospel can't be stopped. It is relentless that you can kill the apostles, imprison believers, you can burn Bibles, you can close down churches, you can try as hard as you want, but nothing will ever get in the way of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Amen? Amen. So here's the question for you. Is the gospel going to stop you or is the gospel going to send you? Is the gospel going to spread through you? You know, let me just close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. And may this be true of us. C.S. Lewis said, My prayer is that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I am out of the fight. I am out of the fight. Let's pray for that boldness, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let's bow our heads and pray. Before I pray for us, I'd love to just give you a moment to have a chance just to do business with God. You know, if it's time to re repent, to confess, take this time to do that. You know, if you've been like me and just way too many times allow fear to take over, confess and repent. And maybe for some of you, you need to pray for courage and boldness because maybe throughout this whole sermon, God has just been telling you, hey, it's time to talk to your neighbor. It's time to talk to your coworker. It's time to talk to your best friend, whoever, that God has laid a person on your heart. Would you pray for God to give you the boldness to tell them about Jesus today, today, today? And then I'll pray for us.
Father God, forgive us for all those times that we've succumbed to fear. That in those moments where we should have been bold and courageous, instead, we hid the gospel. We were ashamed of being a Christ follower. Father, forgive us for that. Because God, our eyes were not on you. Our eyes were on ourselves. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness and courage to not be ashamed. That God, that we would believe in the depths of our hearts that the gospel is power, that it is the hope that brings. That God, that it is a truth to be embraced and to be believed in. Father, I would pray for us that God, as a church, as a South Loop location, that we would be known in this neighborhood and community as a church that stands proudly for the gospel because it is truth, it is beautiful, it is holy, it is the way to salvation. And God, I do pray that more and more folks, Lord, would fill these seats, these seats that are empty here right now, because, Lord, that they had a chance to hear us proclaim the gospel to them. So, Father, we pray for that. We pray for that kind of change, that kind of transformation, because, Father, your gospel is power. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.